This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Time for our counterpoint, which is brought to you by our friends over at Pizzaville. You can call them at 416-736-3636 or order online, pizzaville.ca. Tonight we got our Wednesday regulars. we got Bill Hutchison, former broadcaster, longtime journalist and professor over at Seneca. Hello. Hi there. And John Mraz, former liberal war room director and all-around mucky muck. Hello. Hello. Let's start with uh, politics uh, well underway in the Bombardier layoffs uh, that we learned about, of course, Tuesday, where 550 people will be losing their jobs because government contracts have dried up. And, of course, the finger pointing starts with the federal liberals blaming the Ford government over letting the contracts dry up. And then, of course, apparently we're somehow obligated to keep throwing the good money after bad because Bombardier can't do anything. Um, You know, the bottom line is... They are going to, um, Bill, somehow come up with money to fix something that really shouldn't be fixed because Bombardier has proved over and over and over again that they can't do what they're supposed to do. So why is it that we are continually forking over you know, good money and not getting any return on our investment? Because there are a lot of politicians who want to claim they are creating or saving jobs. And it's an election year, and that's good politics for them to do that. I've, uh, I've heard a lot of people say that Bombardier really isn't in the business of, of building streetcars or planes or whatever. They're in the business of getting government subsidies. And they've, uh, by some estimates, uh, collected three to five, three to $4 billion since the mid-1960s because governments just keep wanting to hand, hand money over to them. Why we keep doing that, I don't know. Uh, if... if you know, is it our responsibility to keep uh, to keep propping up this company? I don't see why it is, but they've poured so much money into it. They're going to keep doing it. Uh, if the federal liberals will not turn away from it, they will come up and say, we're going to save all these jobs and aren't we wonderful and that'll get us votes. Yeah, I, d- I don't think a lot of Canadians are going to buy that. I mean, this is in the Liberal MP's riding. It's in, it's in Thunder Bay. How the hell did she not know, John, that the rumblings were here on this? And furthermore... Um, any corporate welfare that we're doling out at these undeserving failures of companies should come with conditions like, oh, yeah, fire all the people that uh, are on the board. Well, Bombardier does a few things very, very well. Other than lobbying, name one. Uh, Historically, the planes they've built have been internationally competitive and priced right, and they've done very well. In fact, the American... Wait a second, wait a second. The jet jet was way behind. The the, the recent uh, jet they were trying to sell was way behind and way over budget. Their private jet program has been excellent. They also produce uh, equipment for the military, hence their name, Bombardier. Great. Okay, if it's so great, why do they have to get money? Well, this is what I would, I would say. The if they were truly from. private company, mm-hmm. then somebody would come along and cut away all sorts of silos that do lose money, but that are subsidized or, in fact, entirely driven by government investment for jobs, etc. So why don't we take a look at a Bombardier and atomize them and figure out what they do well and what they do poorly, because mm-hmm. uh, they have a mixed record. Uh, 550 jobs, it's an election year, absolutely. Thunder Bay has been historically either a liberal or an NDP seat, not a conservative seat. So there's the war. And, uh, and of course, you, you never want to, that's, that's an economically depressed area, and you, you never want to see those jobs lost. Nope. 
But, but I also don't think the taxpayers anywhere, whether it's SNC, Bombardier, all these very, uh, you know, Quebec friendly, liberal friendly companies, I'm not, I'm not, don't want to prop them up, especially given and, that they've done such a terrible job. Yeah, look at the streetcar yeah. uh, contract they had with the city of Toronto, way behind on delivery of those. And when they finally did deliver 89 of them, 60 odd had to go back for welding problems. This is not a company that has has outperformed any other company in terms of delivery of, of its product. Mm-hmm. It's failed in that, and perhaps it's not, the contracts are drying up because it hasn't been able to deliver. Right, and last week uh, around Canada Day, Justin Trudeau announced $1.3 billion that came out of nowhere for a Montreal uh, you know, transit deal in his riding. Well, if they knew that these layoffs were coming, why wouldn't they have made some kind of quote-unquote announcement for Bombardier, other than the fact it's not in his riding? I don't know, and I don't pretend to know the mind of Justin Trudeau because I feel like there are falafels in there most of the time. But but um, uh, the bottom line is that that's riding, uh, and there'll be a fight. And I often, when I see this, I think of the way the Russians sort of approach political communi- communications, which is you create a problem and then you solve it. Mm-hmm. Yes, they'll come in looking like they. So I also. sniff a little bit of Russian agitprop. Yeah, let's uh, speak about our friend and former fired Chinese ambassador John McCallum apparently deciding to uh, open his mouth again, warning the Chinese government that hurting Canada further will help a conservative government get elected. He said, quote, anything that is more negative against Canada will help the conservatives who are much less friendly to China than the liberals. I hope and I don't see any reason why things will get worse. It would be nice if things will get better between now and Canada's federal election in October. Um, you know, the bottom line is, John, uh, this guy was fired from his job back in January, right, of course, around the time SNC broke, because uh, he was an idiot and was saying stuff like this uh, and not doing his job. But he's not even working for the government. How is it possible that he's allowed to meddle and undermine our election by telling China what to do? John McCallum has been his own man for a very long time, and he served the public uh, and their interests well at points for a very long time. And I would say this. I, like, I, I don't think for, he's, like I don't think he's relevant to the story. I don't think the Chinese care whether it's a conservative or a liberal government. And I also question whether the conservatives would be worse or better with the Chinese. I see very little difference between Harper's success or failure uh, and Trudeau's. But, been, that's, but that's not the point. Why is Mr. McCallum constantly speaking on issues he's not supposed to? Because somebody stuck a microphone in front of his face. The question is, why are we still listening to him? Really, he's yesterday's man. Why Why are we still giving this man oxygen and listening to him? I don't think the Chinese, I, I agree with John, I don't think the Chinese care who's in power in, in Ottawa, really. Uh, they will carry on the way they, they carry on, and, and they will run roughshod over whatever government's in, in, in power at the time. Sure, um, but, but we're always talking about foreign interference, and here you've got a, a liberal, former liberal MP ambassador, you know, undermining... I mean, interference, yeah. Uh, but he's one voice, and I don't think the Chinese are really listening to him. Saying, oh, you know what, if John McCallum says that, maybe it's a good idea we, we uh, jump in there and, and make sure that it's not a conservative government. So where does this go? But yeah, and yet not a peep out of Justin Trudeau and Christian Freeland today denouncing, saying this is not... Could, <laughs> could, be, it could be a trial balloon, just see how it goes. Uh, just, you know, it could be just trying to raise a few more votes really? right before they fix Bombardier. Right, because it's gone so well so far. Uh, Let's talk about, I don't really understand this issue entirely, because I just don't understand why it's still an issue. Um, But for the first time, you know, in this country, we've got this kind of wave of blue of like-minded thinkers at the provincial level. And Doug Ford is in Saskatoon 
hoping, I think, to do what no one else has, which is to bring free trade or freer trade within this country. You know, we trade with the U.S., the European Union, much of the Pacific Ring, uh, the Rim, and yet, Bill, we cannot do trade within our own country, and it's costing us about $130 billion a year. And it's been a problem for decades, and people have known about this problem, and they've tried to fix it. Uh, a couple of years ago, the provinces and the federal government all signed this Canada Free Trade Agreement that was supposed to solve it, except that half of the agreement were exceptions to the agreement and, and opt-out clauses in the agreement. There are silly rules between provinces, between jurisdictions. For example, certain truck uh, configurations can drive at night only uh, in B.C., but only during the daytime in, in uh in Alberta. So mm-hmm. if you're driving across, you're going to stop and wait till it's time that you... Other places, they have to change their tires at the border because they can't. There are... Uh, alcohol can't be transported from one province to the other, even though the federal government in, in the recent budget said they were going to get rid of that those prohibitions. The problem is the provinces haven't changed their minds on that. There's all kinds of different regulations, and they just get more complex every day. And I don't know if you can ever solve this. I don't think you can ever get every... Every government in Canada to agree to let's get rid of some of these regulations, let's ca- cut the red tape. No matter no matter how much they talk about it, it's crazy though. I mean, and this is a file, well, John, that the prime minister told others. I mean, certainly Harper said, you know, you've got to show leadership on this. But okay, then show it because we're, we're losing money that we should have within our own. We're back to votes, and the provincial contest on these issues is all about you know all politics or local politics. And good luck to Dougie as he goes out in the middle of yeah. July when no legislature is sitting and he has taken a beating through the first two quarters and he's looking for a good story. So uh, he's trying to change the channel. Well, Jason Kenney is all. I mean, they're they're, they're all hoping to get this done. I I don't think it's going to get done. But again, I just don't understand why it's not getting done. I could. I I, I was thinking of the list of politicians who've tried to solve this. But at the end of the day, it comes down to provincial elections and protectionism by provincial governments of all stripe say, well, we're not going to put up with that. I mean, the animus between B.C. and Alberta mm-hmm. is maybe what saved us sometimes from a real separation movement. You know, so, OK, go for it, Dougie. Well, at least get something. If, if he can clear some of the red tape out of the way between a couple of the provinces, maybe he'll have some some momentum there. I don't see them getting rid of all the regulations that that cause a problem. I do the not believe he will get a single thing done and there's I think, a reason no, that the He's got most seem to be on the same page and he and Jason Kenny seem to be on the same page I, and I there's certain regulations energy, that they just, can change there. Just get energy done. I don't care about anything else. Just get energy done. <laughs> All right, let's uh, take a quick pause here, and we'll go into round two of Counterpoint, which, of course, is brought to you by our friends over at Pizzaville. You can head online to pizzaville.ca or call 416-736-3636. And when we come back, we'll talk about a, a ruling in a court case that involves Lisa McLeod and the judge ruling against something she had hoped to do should she have gotten an exception. We'll we got John Raz and Bill Hutchison here in studio to weigh off. Uh, another big headline coming out of the uh, defense area, uh, learning that, again, the second highest ranking in command in Canada's military, uh, Lieutenant General Paul Winnick, resigning abruptly after uh, he said that the Chief of Defense Staff, General Vance, told him that he was being replaced as the Vice Chief of the Defense Staff with Vice Mark, Admiral Mark Norman, uh, who had, of course, just had charges against him drop. And then Norman, of course, said, uh, I don't want this. He took a settlement that came out of nowhere. And now this guy was offered his job back, and he said, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. I think I'll go. But this is uh, Bill, you know, Mercedes Stevenson breaking the story. This is the fifth Vice Chief to roll through General Vance's leadership. Yeah, it speaks to really bad management and a lot of political interference in this case. Uh, I think that we all, I think we all assume that uh, the Norman case 
Uh, there were political implications for, for in the laying of the charges and also in the dropping of the charges and then also in, in the the settlement that he came to to get him out of there. And obviously nobody told Vance that we we're going to negotiate this settlement with How, him. How, though? That's, it's incredible because to Because he's out of the loop. It's, a, it's such bad management, it's political interference, and it really speaks to incompetence uh, <laughs> at, at this level. But being out of the loop, John, I mean, there are reports, if you follow, you know, the whole Mark Norman affair, as I did, where, you know, uh, Gerald Butts and Katie Telford were meeting General Vance for dinners. You know, General Vance was called to testify during the pretrial and I uh, just didn't manage to uh, take any notes, doesn't remember anything what happened. I, like, what is going on? This is shameful. It's shameful. And, and I, I, I can't even begin to speak of it in partisan terms. If you're going to lead men to protect your nation and into and battle to the front lines, why don't women. you show some unity? And men and women, thank you very much. Uh, and why don't you show some unity? Why don't you just show some discretion? This is a soap opera going on. There's two guys who work security on, on Queen Street in, in front of a big club who are recruiters for the mm-hmm. Canadian Forces. And I walk by them every day. My office is right there. And they are horrified and embarrassed and angry uh, at the way the officer corps are behaving, at the entitlements these people receive while our the guys, our ground pounders who do all the good and hard work and boots are fighting for treatment for PTSD, for pensions, for all of those things. Sexual and the story is about a bunch of guys at a cotillion having like a fight. Okay. And it's 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 absurd and it's ridiculous. And I very much hope that our officer class uh, which I, I can think of a few generals that I, I, I got to know personally overseas that said are extraordinary leaders. None of this happened under their under their command. I don't think the liberals or the conservatives have anything to do with it. But uh, you, you, you're right there uh, as far as like you know veterans and that. But under the conservative government, you didn't get any of this nonsense in the upper echelons uh, of the uh, of uh, you know no, you that to, we're talking about. You have to go back to the crate chain years, right? With the, with the Somalia yes. and all the rest yes. of it. You're inviting regiments to squawk and fight amongst themselves and pick sides. The officer class should be unified and treat right. the men who serve this and country women. and women. But the prime minister's office should also not be meddling. Dignity. Well, there's no question about that, but that's not the story. These guys could stop the story right here. Right? They they they, they, they don't have to walk up to the mic. No, but political interference is part of this story, a big part of this big. story. That's that's what drove this whole story. That's why Norman was charged in the first place. That's why the charges were were withdrawn. That's that's why I respectfully disagree with you. I don't think that's what's driving, and I know a lot of guys in the military, and you know why. And that's not what's driving the story. These are egos, and this is a fractured leadership. I I actually believe that Vance was cut out of the loop uh, after the fact. It sounds like you know he offered Mark Norman the job back and had no idea that the government was quietly working on this secret deal to to shut him up. That's what it appears from the outside. And I would caveat this, Bill. You're right that the prime minister's office and the PCO should have nothing to do with this. And they should have stayed out of it, and they're taking advantage where they can and picking sides of further transgression. The military should guide itself. It's a mess. Anyway, uh, an, Ottawa, an Ottawa judge has ruled against a publication ban on Lisa McLeod's victim impact statement. The uh, Crown had asked for, for one in the criminal harassment trial of Rebecca Reed. This is the Ottawa mother of a child with autism who had sent McLeod hundreds of very threatening emails and voicemails and uh, angry and threatening uh, messages. And McLeod apparently wanted to write the victim impact statement and didn't want that private information of her family getting out. So she's not going to submit one now, Bill. Uh, but as you well know from covering courts, witness impact statement, the victim impact statements very rarely get, um, you know, silenced or, or protected. I'm not sure Lisa McLeod deserves that kind of protection. No, I don't think she should get preferential treatment. 
but I do think that it's time we looked at whether or not we should uh, allow more publication bans on victim impact statements. Really? Yeah, because I, I just because I think enough. it's revictimizing people. Yeah, but I, I also understand like. I don't they, know. They don't that that, have to write them. They can write them and then. No, I know, but but in in her case and in some other cases, this is very painful process for them to go through, and then for it to become public again is revictimizing them. And I don't think uh, Lisa McLeod necessarily deserves special treatment. I think a lot of victims should. You know, you know that uh, mm-hmm. in the like in the preliminary hearings, if the defense asks for a publication ban, it's automatically yeah. granted because we've got to protect the the accused. Sure. Well, why shouldn't we protect the victims as well? If, if, if somebody's actually been victimized and it's going to be painful for them to come out and, and talk about how they've been victimized, why shouldn't we be able to protect their protect their, their privacy rights? I don't know. I want as much I don't think it hurts the administration of justice. Yeah, I, I'd like more you know, transparency in my justice. It's that, a that's slippery slope. I, I, Bill, I hear everything you're saying, but it's a slippery slope because I think one of the, the last institutions that really has... Uh, unassailable integrity in Canada is our judiciary, and one of the reasons for that is that most proceedings are transparent and accessible and can be heard. So you got to balance that. The the val- the the, uh, the verdict, uh, the whole process is is transparent, and that's fine. I don't know that it it uh, serves a, a, the public's perp- uh, the public's interest to to publicize the victim impact statement. Well, I'm not a lawyer, and I don't pretend to be one in real life, but I do know that I feel more confident in any system that's oh. as transparent as oh. it can be without, Despite as attempts you say, to interfere in it by the federal government. My, my, my faith has waned in years, John. I'm sorry, but uh, yeah. Um, I, I don't have a lot of time for this, but this is uh, involving a play that is set against the backdrop of the case of an Ontario nurse, Elizabeth Wetlofer, who killed eight elderly patients. Uh, and there's a play that is going to be running at the Theatre in Blythe, Ontario, which is just north of uh, London, a stage show that will open up that drum, you know, uh, shows the, the fallout of the murders committed by Wetlawfer. And it's called In the Wake of Wetlawfer. It doesn't actually portray the serial killer of her crimes. The families were consulted. And here is how the theatre is defending, um, you know, a theatre production that's getting a lot of blowback. Anybody who knows um, the Blythe Festival knows that we are a charity. This is not a commercial venture. We're not um, uh, profiteering off of the story. This is um, a piece that is being created in order for a community to have a conversation. And I think that people who feel too acutely um, the pain of this conversation should avoid the show and should avoid that conversation. I tend to agree, Bill. And if you don't want to see it, and you're not, a, you know, you're going to be offended, don't go. But the the, the people uh, of the actual the victims, they don't have a problem with this because they were spoken to and they understand it. No, I think there are one or two members of the families that are objecting to it. But it, it's it's a very fresh uh, wound for for that community. It's difficult for them to deal with. But art is going to push boundaries and it's going to raise uh, some, uh, you know raise some issues that people don't necessarily want to talk about. And, and it, as, as he says, if you don't want to see it, don't go see it. Just ignore it. I'm not sure exactly what this play is going to be about because it doesn't depict Wetlaw for herself. It doesn't pick, depict the crimes. Mm-hmm. It's about the aftermath. And I'm not sure how interesting that would be yeah, as a production. I, that, that is also the area that I have trouble trying to figure out because it didn't, it didn't get nearly as much attention as some other uh, kind of salacious crimes that we've, we've covered. Well, I will gladly say that the more people who know the story, the more people will be aware of what to look for in the future. I don't think this play is going to, to make much of a difference in that regard uh, in terms of making people more aware. If you're not aware of what happened with, with Wetlaufer, then a play is not really going to change it that much. In that community, everybody knows what yeah. happened. All right, guys, got to leave it on that note. I thank you both for joining. That is Bill Hutchison and John Mraz.
here on this edition of Counterpoint, which of course is brought to you by our friends over at Pizzaville. You can go online, pizzaville.ca, or just call them up, 416-736-3636. They will get you all set up.